Well, it is certainly a pleasure. If you have your Bible this morning, we are going to be back in the study of Joshua. I'm excited about it uh, because this is a tremendous book. It's a, uh, a way, uh, you know, as we walk through this together, there's so many glorious truths that God uh, continues to, to show us in the midst of this. Uh, and so what I want to do is I want to just bow in prayer before we study God's word together. This is a significant time, and we need the work of the Spirit to help us understand the significance of, of the things that we are, or we are going to come across in God's word. So pray with me, if you will. Oh, Father, Lord, we, we think of your love for us and your kindness and compassion, that you would take us and remove us from the kingdom of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Lord, it's to this kingdom we await for you to sit, your Son, to sit on this throne, to rule in righteousness. Lord, of which promises that you will keep the fulfillment of the complete land promise that we study in the book of Joshua. Lord, I pray that as we study your word together today that you Spirit of God would, would be moving in our hearts, challenging our spirit, convicting our lives, Lord, so that we would have a heavenly, a heavenly gaze. Lord, we would not be able to take our eyes off you and your truths and commit ourselves to them every time that we hear them, Lord. So please help us as we study uh, the book of Joshua this morning together. In your name we pray, amen. Joshua chapter 5 is where we're going to be. We left off uh, a number of different, uh, as we studied the book of Joshua in the past, we took a little bit of uh, hiatus from this to do uh, Stewardship Month and then, of course, our Passion Week conference. But here we find ourselves back, so I want to just reacclimate ourselves just for a moment. So if you could, just turn back to Joshua 1, if you would. Take your Bible, turn back to Joshua 1, and just let me just remind you of a couple of truths that God continues to unfold in the life of his people during these moments of time of the conquest of Joshua. Joshua chapter 1, verse 5 through 8, says, says this amazing and remarkable statement. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so Joshua, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous, and be careful to do all according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Oh, believer, don't, don't forget this morning as you read your Bible and you come across the very revelation of God through the pages of the Scripture, and as he speaks to you and convicts your life, that you and I don't have, we have to have the same kind of affirmation. A commitment not to turn from the right or to the left, but to stay transfixed on doing whatever it is that God has called us to do at any moment that he calls us to do it. 
Because it is by this, by the way, that you see that God says, you want to know what success is? Success isn't your 401k. Success isn't in a number of people in an auditorium. Success is, is what, 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 what success looks like is people following the words of the living God. No matter what happens, his words matter the most. Oh, Joshua needed that. No, I, can, I can't even imagine if I were to try to, even my mind as I've sat and studied these pages of Scripture, to think to myself how much struggle perhaps Joshua could have ha- had in his own mind. And here we're going, and I've been there. I've spied out the land. I know what's waiting for us on the other side of this Jordan. Well, notice in Joshua chapter 1, verse 13, it, these, these remarks are continued. He says in verse 13 of chapter 1, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Oh, that is the promise that Joshua and the people tucked into their mind, every warrior out for battle, every circumstance they had to face, that this God, their God, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, the one who met with them on Mount Sinai in thunder and in righteousness, told them, don't you touch this mountain, otherwise you will die, because I am holy. He says, this God, this covenant-keeping God of Israel wants to lead us to a place of rest. And they had that in the forefront of their mind as they walked across the Jordan. And in Joshua chapter 4, turn there, notice in verse number 14 of this particular chapter, move ahead just briefly, and, and it, says that, it says this statement. And on that day, after they had crossed the Jordan... And on that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. Oh, the assurance of Joshua, and I think by God's comfort and design, that God would miraculously affirm a level of his leadership by by doing all kinds of miracles, and now crossing the Jordan on dry land, and now all the people say, man, this guy... This Joshua who Moses trained up and mentored, and he is, he is our leader. Man, we want this guy. He wants to follow the Lord, Jesus, the, the, the Lord of heaven. Now notice this. I love for Joshua's confirmation. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Because I can, I, there is no doubt in my mind that Joshua was as human as any, any one of us. And that he would lie on his pillow at night, in the midst of his tent, thinking to himself, I know they said they would follow me, but I've watched him say that to Moses too. I wonder what will happen. And yet God's divine miracle and intervention to say, Joshua, I'm going to help them. Joshua chapter 4, verse 20, notice this. And they took up the 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, and Joshua set them up at Gilgal. And then in verse number 24, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. See, please remember, believer, The fear of the Lord is not just a situational circumstance. It is a pursuit of your life. It's not something you say, oh, I'm afraid. God, help me now. 
See, it is the pursuit of every well-intended believer in the living God that you can fear, you fear him and, and you love him forever and then we do that to a heightened degree in eternity. This brings us right to chapter five. Imagine to yourself, you are one of those people. Try to picture in your mind's eye sitting on the west side of the Jordan, crossing with your young children, hand in hand, mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers, generation from generation, stepping across, no doubt in their mind thinking, this is really happening. The water, it's dry. It's moved all the way up. I mean, this is remarkable. I mean, if, if they would have had cell phones then, could you imagine the delay? I mean, hold on, hold on. I got to get a picture of this. But every moment they would try to capture in their mind's eye to take with them into the promised land to say, our God is able to deliver us. And he will bring us the rest that he promised us. We can trust him. Look at what he's doing. Oh, the confidence that he was building in in the whole entire nation of Israel by bringing them across. They are now, have all come across did you imagine, no, no doubt, those, uh, you know, there's a lot of firsts that go on. I mean, you probably were, if, if you were part of people of Israel, like, hey, I was the first one to the other side. I'm that guy. I get to go down in history. I'm the last one. Whoever came out of there when God dried up the waters of the Jordan, I got to stand alongside the brink of the shore where all of a sudden it all came crashing back together. And every time I look at those stones, At Gilgal, I'm reminded of the picture that God has infused on my mind to such a degree to say, God is capable to do anything that he desires. Joshua 5 comes, and here they are now, moving closer and closer to the city of Jericho. And we only got a hint of this in the, in the situation of the spies going to Rahab. And you can remember, in all this time, in all these circumstances, the people of Jericho are watching this happened. They know what's going on. Over a million and a half people sitting on the west side of the Jordan, God dries up the waters of the Jordan, and they had heard what God had done in the Red Sea. And would you imagine what they were thinking? Oh my goodness, we are next on his list. And yet this small contingency and band of family tucked away quietly in the house of Rahab with a scarlet cord sitting outside the window just praying and begging that when they came to the city that they would be saved exactly the way the spies had mentioned to them. Here they move just a bit closer now into the plains that is called in Jericho and I want to read verses 1 all the way through 12 of chapter 5 follow along and then we're going to make some comments about these verses. It says, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and and there was no longer spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. And so Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Paraloth. 
And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt and all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who had come out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war, who came out of Egypt perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. And the Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. Now when the circumcision of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the, the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. And while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening in the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, the unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Oh, could you imagine how incredibly tasty that must have been for them. To think to themselves, this is, God is doing wonders. God is doing something remarkable for us. He's challenging our lives in such a way that he would draw us to a level of his own confidence and security and glory. Well, I would just challenge you this morning as we look at this particular passage, this is what I want you to carry through as you think about a main theme of this particular text, that trust and obedience are essential qualities of, of following the Lord. Trust and obedience are such critical elements of the Christian walk that somehow, even when it's challenging and even when it's difficult, these are the things that mark God's people. Whatever God says, whatever he wants, that is what we do. Not because it's convenient, not because it's oftentimes enjoyable, but it's because what he says is valuable. Oh, tuck this away, believer, because this is going to be the case for the rest of your Christian journey here on earth. You ought to always come back in your devotions. The times that you, you listen to spiritual things, podcasts, sermons, devotions on your own, devotional booklets, you ought to be saying to yourself, how is this drawing me to trust him and what is it leading me to do to obey him? Oh, there should be a constant evaluation as we had called ourselves to about the stewardship of our lives. Where am I not trusting that I should? Where am I not obeying that I, uh, that I must? And correct and alter and realign our lives in a way that is consistent with the very truths of God's revelation. Joshua chapter 5 puts it to, uh, gives us this particular circumstance to help us understand what was going on in the life of the people. And it teaches us something, by the way, about the very fear of the Lord. Now just keep in mind as you're walking through the text, you'll see these various components in names, for example. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea. 
He groups the people of the land of the conquest that they would go and God had called them to take over and destroy. He grouped them in various groupings. So in this case, he says there's these groupings of people. So we'll say it this way. There was a number of kings that combined together created the Amorite people. And yet there were individual kings of the Amorites as well. And then as they looked, uh, as they looked and they said, well, there were the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea. What you had is not a unified nation like the nation of Israel, but a whole bunch of maybe what we describe as kinglets. Like you had a a city that had a king. We call them mayors, but in their town, uh, you know, we don't want them to act like a king. We want them to act like a mayor. But in this case, they were the king. They They had bands of people, soldiers, and they would all, they had fortified cities, and these these cities in the Canaanite land all the way to the Mediterranean Sea were beginning to hear the God that dried up the waters of the Red Sea, the God who was moving in the life of the people of Israel, the God who had dried up the waters of of the Jordan River. Oh, it's remarkable to me that that the people of the land did, did not bury their head in the sand. They had the most clear view of God's divine sovereign acts that anyone could have in the land and they were afraid out of their mind. The statement is made in this particular text that their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Even that was a very promise fulfilled that God told Moses that he would bring a fear upon the nations that they would go and inherit the land. Their hearts melted. You know what that means? That every faculty of their human personhood was at unrest. They tucked their family away in their house in the city of Jericho and the cities in the Canaanite villages and all the kings and they said to themselves, We are in trouble. Intellectually, they're trying to conjure up in their mind, what do we do? Should we fight? What kind of alliances should be made? And then in their emotions, all of a sudden they were distraught and distressed. It's described as melting of their own heart. They didn't even know what to do with what their mind began to process. And their actions led them to fear what would happen to them. It's so interesting to me the way in which God calls us to fear him. He calls us to fear him with the totality of who we are. He calls you to fear him in your intellect so that when you read the Bible and you see on the pages of Scripture these incredible, glorious truths that somehow in your mind you don't have to say, oh my goodness, uh, I don't know about that, God. That you have to and I have to wrestle with the eyes and gaze of a holy God who desires to be known by us. That our own emotions can be satisfied and have a peace that passes all understanding. That we, as reflected image bearers of God, can be angry at sin and angry at unrighteousness and hate the impact of sin. Our whole faculty is involved with fearing the Lord It's interesting how the fear of the Lord in the passages uh, like this 
is directed in two different ways by the same incredible God. I mean, for the people of Canaan, I mean, it wasn't just fear for the sake of fear. What was God trying to accomplish? I'll tell you what he was trying to accomplish. He was trying to accomplish what was happening in Rahab. He cared that these people would would be lost. He had given them hundreds of years, and we'll come back to this, of prophecy to leave them to see if they would turn to the living God. Oh, and it's sad to us that we only see a fraction, this small little sliver of Rahab and her family that would then trust in all of these wondrous works of this majestic God. And yet, for the same time, the people of Israel are coming across the Jordan, and he's, gonna, and he's saying to them, I'm going to help these people fear you, uh, help, help the people fear me, and fear you, so that you fear me. They, he did not want them to forget. Listen, we just dropped a whole bunch of people off in the wilderness, and we would not leave there until they were all gone, as I promised. I am serious about what I'm saying to you. And the fear of the Lord impacted every faculty of the human person at that moment in the nation of Israel. And they were challenged to have to think, this God is greatly to be feared. We must follow him. Do you find it difficult to follow him when you're filled with fear? Have you ever find, found it at various moments of your life, there's things that you fear greatly and in the midst of it you find that it's so difficult that you begin to start to kind of panic and anxious and and you're in your own soul you're kind of coming apart and your mind seems to be going everywhere and your emotional status is so unstable it's like James is describing it like the waves of the sea coming crashing in and out and in and out it is God's desire that fear in fearful circumstances, drive us to trust in the living God who becomes our anchor in the midst of the storm. It is from these moments, believers and brothers and sisters, in which he calls you and I to stabilize and help and encourage and strengthen one another to say, do these things that God has called us to do. And yet even when we do them, in our own human frailty, they're hard to do. Oh, I found myself so many different times calling out as the psalmist did, like Psalm 62, verses 5 to 6. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I will not be shaken. Oh, it's these moments, and I don't know where you're at in the midst of your life, believer. There's a lot of things that shake our faith and provide a sense of context which we, are, we come to conclusions that we have to determine. What does fearing the Lord, trusting, and obeying look like? He might call some of you to a variety of experiences that he doesn't call others to. He may, he may call some to have to grapple with levels of, 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 of miscarriage. And in the quietness of your own soul, you might be saying to yourself, I, I'm afraid that what if I never get to enjoy this? He might challenge you with the death of a loved one unexpectedly and have to think, well, what is God going to do here? 
It is the fear that resides within our own human soul that has to drive us to say, Lord, I don't know what you're going to do with all of this, but I trust you. I might not even be able to see it all, and I don't have a clear picture. I don't know how you're going to do what you're going to do, but I know you've called me to do what you've asked me to do, and that's, where, that's all I can do. That disposition of fear of the Lord, the reverence of the Almighty, was challenging to the people of the Canaanite land and every king and every kingdom in the Canaanite cities and every land east of the Jordan and the land west of the Jordan. And don't think it had been too long that Egypt is still not reeling from what occurred in the past. And the people of Israel moved on to continue to grapple with their own soul to say, will I fear the Lord? Will I trust him? And obey him. Don't think that there weren't moms and dads who were still wondering what their moms and what they heard their moms and dads say. There's giants in the land. They're gonna squash us. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. They're wondering what's gonna happen. But when God moves in miraculous ways and does things, you you notice this? He didn't tell them. He didn't tell them before he got to the Jordan River. Hey, Go down, don't let your heart be fearful. Travel down there, I'm going to part the the Jordan River. He got them there, he got them to the brink of the promised land, and what he's doing for them is he's saying, you are called to trust me one step at a time. One day at a time, one moment at a time, and every time that you struggle, I want you to think, God, I'm going to wait alone in you in silence, and I will trust you. You are my fortress. You are my rock. I will not be shaken. One step at a time, Christian, he is guiding and orchestrating your life and mine. He doesn't give us more than we can handle in one day. Praise God for that. He gives us one moment, one decision at a time, to go to the truth and say, obey him, trust him, fear him, love him. Oh, as they were there now in Gilgal, setting up camp, having erected the altar from the 12, or the 12 stones that would remind them of God's sovereign, miraculous efforts, the people were called to two different sets of reminders in the process so that they could continue to remember the God of the covenant. Now, as as we think about this together in in Joshua chapter 5, verse number 2, one of the things that we want to remind ourselves, there's this huge passage, and now he explains this, and there's a level of fear of God, and now a description of faithfulness to the covenant. Now, if we remember this reality in the process, and you may have to flip to the next uh, screen, uh, we'll fix all this, but it's pretty simple for you, But I want you to get your mind's eye to begin to think to yourself, there's something about faithfulness to this covenant. See, all the way back, the people could remember that we are the nation of Israel. Who are our fathers? Oh, our fathers are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the 12 sons of Jacob who were were led into Egypt and were allowed to go there for 400 years of suffering until by God's sovereign hand, Moses would call them out. 
It was this people, by the way, that were not a a, a people that God chose because, oh, they were so much more delightful than all the Canaanites and Amorites and everybody else. They were a people in whom God sovereignly set his gaze upon. Christian, do you know something about that? Have you experienced something like that when you've repented and trusted in Christ as your Savior? You then became the object, instead of an object of his wrath, you became an object of his grace and his mercy. And it wasn't because you were so good and you looked better than everybody else around you and he thought to himself, ooh, I've got to get this one. I am so convinced after watching God do what God does, I I think he reaches to the bottom of the barrel first and says, watch what I can do with this. You have no idea. I'm going to astound the wisdom of the world and confound it by turning it upon its head. How does he do it? Fear of God, trust, and obedience. That's how he does it. He reminded the people at Gilgal to say, there's something about this covenant that mattered. These people, and there was plenty of the people groups all throughout the ancient Near Eastern world, by the way, that had, uh, in a sense, understanding of, of circumcision. But it was God's sovereign design that the people of God would be marked in this way as a sign of the covenant. And this came all the way back, if you want to go back later and read it yourself, in Genesis chapter 17, when God comes to Abraham at 99 years old. I don't know about you, but that's not the time I want to be getting a sign of the covenant at 99. The reality is at 99, he's telling him, well, I think you should bless Ishmael because I don't have a son. And there's going to be no people, even though you told me there's going to be a people. And then God says, Sarah's going to have a child. You remember what he does? He laughs. She laughs, and he's kind of like, he doesn't laugh, she laughs, and all of a sudden they're wondering, how's God going to do this? God makes a covenant with them, and the miraculous component is that Sarah in her old age bears a son by a miraculous affirmation that God will do what he does, and when God tells you to keep the sign of the covenant, you keep the sign of the covenant. Fast forward just a little bit further, and all of a sudden we notice that this had not gone away in the people. Moses had left and fled from Egypt for a number of years. And God found him in the land of Midian where he had taken a wife by the name of Zipporah. And you remember these characters in the Bible. Jethro, her father, which was a huge help to Moses as they they wandered. And yet on the way prior to coming back to go and be the deliverer, it came to his uh, attention by God's sovereign choice that Moses had not committed himself to the sign of the covenant to his own children. And God meets him along the way in Exodus chapter 4, and all of a sudden, and it says this word, this was astounding to me, God came to him and he was going to kill him because he would not follow the sign of the covenant. Zipporah, his wife, understanding the gravity of the situation, grabs a flint knife, circumcises the children, and throws it down before the, before the Lord, and God's anger was, 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 was taking a step back. That's how important the sign of the covenant was. It was a reminder that God had chosen you as a people. He has marked you in a, in a very physical way to say, you are mine. And yet it became illustrations. 
for years and years to come, all the way into the Old Testament prophets of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, where they would say, I want you to circumcise your heart from a heart of stubbornness and a heart of stone to a heart of flesh who will trust and obey me. Oh, the sign of the covenant was such a critical component. It was to il- illustrate God's desire that he, they belong to him. And it's there, it is his hope that when all of this occurs, that God would, that, that they would say, okay, whatever you demand. Now just think for a moment, take a step back for a minute and understand the story. The people of Jericho and the cities in the kingdoms of the land of Canaan know what's about to occur. There's a, they are on the brink of war. The Israelite community, now having all their soldiers having died off in the wilderness, now coming across on dry land, they, they go and they set up camp at Gilgal. Now think about this. If you were a man of war, now you've, got, you've raised up another generation of the one that has passed, and you're saying, they're ready and they could come on us as well. And then God says, hey, Joshua, hold on a minute. We need to have, go back and make sure that the sign of the covenant is taken care of because this is a big deal to me and I'm not going any further until everybody who has not been circumcised is going to go and make sure that you do what I have called you to do. Now, if you're thinking to yourself like I am, okay, just logically think about this. So we're on the brink of war and you want to incapacitate our entire army. You, this is what's going on. You can't go further until you wait, obey, trust me. Where's the obedience? It's the obedience to the sign of the covenant. And when everybody says, this is what God told Joshua, they were supposed to obey. And so they did. And now where's the trust come in? (laughs) We're going to have to heal. And we're going to have to hope that God is going to keep these people away until we get a point where God leads us forward. And isn't it ironic and foreshadowing, by the way, that it wasn't so many days before they would go to Jericho and they didn't, they didn't end up destroying the walls, that they walked around them and that God took care of it even in the midst of a various component shortly after, something that would have incapacitated the entire army. See, God knows what he's doing. And yet, do you, do you get this in your Christian walk? That he, you don't have the right to tell him whether, the, like, that's odd. Like, why now? <laughs> I mean, like, if you, were in, if you were in the military, you'd probably be like, well, we should fight first. And then once we're at peace and at rest, then we'll take care of that. No, God said, we're not moving until we obey. We are not moving until we, until we complete what God wants us to complete. And this issue was an enormous issue for the people in whom God has set his gaze upon and chose this sign of the covenant in which they were supposed to obey. I think it recalls to our mind what happened in Egypt, what happened in the wilderness. It was fresh in the minds of the people of Israel. People had been lost. People had fallen because of their their unwillingness to trust God and obey. It was a call to them as a people, as a nation, And I would have it called to you. How serious do you take God? 
when he says whatever he wants to say. It is the call of each one of our own hearts as we are intersected with the life of the revelation of God to say, God, okay, I'll do it. It doesn't have to make sense to me, but I'm going to follow whatever it is you call me to follow. Is it a, it's a confidence and a deliberation of the mind to love the Lord your God with all your heart in such a way that whether an, a previous generation in the past did whatever they did, but for you, you, what are you going to do? What am I going to do? Every day we are confronted with that choice. Will we obey the voice of the living God? Will I be part of a new generation of people? A new group that says, you know what? I'm not going to be like my fathers in the wilderness. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to do this for the, for the sake of the glory of God. This is so critical in the life because it has spiritual overtones and in Deuteronomy 10, he says these very words. Uh, he says, circumcise your heart and be no longer stubborn. Deuteronomy 30, he says, and the Lord God, in verse number six, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. Oh, I love what Romans chapter two says when Paul is arguing this. And he says, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. See, circumcision, even as a sign of the Old Testament, never saved someone. It was an act that the nation followed. It was an obediential element of a life, of a heart that was supposed to already be transformed. They were vulnerable. They sat there, the people of Jericho knew. They obeyed the command of the Lord, and I think it's remarkable that Joshua doesn't even flinch to say, all right, if this is what you want us to do, then we'll do it in the plains near Jericho, and then when you want us to move forward, that's what we'll do. And they all succumb to it and say, you know what, here's where we're going to do, because if we don't obey God, we know what will happen. It was such a serious note. And it says in verse 7, and so it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised for they, for they had done this together and now when the whole nation in verse 8, uh, when they had finished completing the sign of the covenant they remained in their camp until they were healed and the Lord said to, to Joshua, and here was the whole picture, today I have rolled away the approach of Egypt and it reminds us of a very specific circumstance in Numbers chapter 14, when he sent the spies out into the land, and they came back, and the ten spies all of a sudden gave a bad report, and the people turned on Moses and Joshua and Caleb and Aaron, and the four of them, they, they fell down before the Lord, they, they tore their clothes, they cried aloud and said, God, what are we to do? And God sends them into the wilderness. In fact, God wanted to do even worse than that. He says, he says, Moses, let me just destroy them and let me just create a new nation out of you. It'll be a whole lot better. And Moses begs them. And you know what he begs them? In Numbers 14, what will the, what will the people of Egypt say? This God who brings them out. He brings them out only to destroy them and kill them. And in Numbers 14, he says, will they say of, the God, of, of, of our God, he's not able 
to complete the promises with which he said he would deliver and bring them into a land? God, don't do it for your name's sake because we fear you. And God relents of his anger, although he still sentences them to 40 years in the wilderness. And he said, when you cross the Jordan, you've completed the sign of the covenant. And today, at Gilgal, now this is why it's kind of a play on words in the Old Testament Hebrew language, because the word Gilgal comes from the Hebrew word galal, which means to roll, almost like rolling your R's. And he's using a wordplay to say something at this place, the place where the rocks were, the place where our central gathering place will be. Now, just tuck this away. They go out and they fight, and they come back to this place. They go out and they fight, and they come back to this place. God has a reminder for all the army to come back, see the stones, remember the sign of the covenant, go back and have war, go and, and see their family. God's doing something. This place is the place where God rolled the approach of Egypt away and said, no, they will never be able to say that this God does not complete his promises and his covenant to his people. When he said he would deliver them, he delivered them. And it's at this place that has been known now as Gilgal, that the army would come back and the people would reside during the conquest and remember the covenant that God had made with them and their acts of obedience to the sign of the covenant. It was the 10th day of the month when they, crossed, when they came across the Jordan. It was the 14th day that would happen, that they would move now from the first Passover and the first fruits. Four days prior to the Passover, usually the way that it occurred is they would take the lamb that would be slain into their home. And that lamb would be part of their family. They'd be running around the house. The kids would be playing with it. And he was reminding them of the Passover when, he, when the angel passed over. And if they, if they had the blood on the door frame that God had called them to, then they lived. But if they didn't obey God, then they, they, their firstborn would die. And now this Passover, when they, before they left Egypt, and now as they enter into the land on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, which is roughly around the month of March. And now, four days they come over, they camp, and the day after would have been the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, where they would remind themselves of the quick journey out of Egypt. Gather your belongings, we're going to the place of rest that God would have us. The Passover and the first fruits were a call and a, and a remembrance by God for the people at that moment so they would trigger in their mind, this God's serious, he's delivered us from Egypt, he's rolled the approach away, and now we're at this place, the 12 stones are exalting him, we watched what he did in the Jordan, we, we heard what he did to the Red Sea with our, with our mother and our father before they passed away. And this issue was so important, you wonder why, for example, why, did, why is there this connection? If you're stu studying this particular passage, you think, why deal with the sign of the covenant of circumcision and then Passover? Because if you look back to Exodus chapter 12, verse 48, notice this text. You don't have to turn there. You can write it down. Exodus 12, 48. He says, if a, sojourner, if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then they may come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land 
but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. It was a prerequisite to the Passover. And he said, no one is allowed unless we get this sign of the covenant done and then we can do it in faithful fidelity to the God who delivered us from Egypt. He was doing this all over. There was the significance of this, of this sign of the covenant combined with the Passover to say, we must fear the Lord. Now notice the enjoyment and the fruit of all this, literally. They crossed over. The manna ceased that day after they ate the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of that year. And you know what? I just tend to think to myself, if you ate manna for 40 straight years, there was probably a little celebration. Like, they're not going out having a gather, like, all right, let's go out and get the manna again. Same grain taste. They ate of the fruit of the produce of the land as a sign from the God of heaven. You have arrived at the place of rest. And you are going to see wonders. And you are going to enjoy far more than a succulent fruit in a land filled with milk and honey. You are going to enjoy a God who has made covenant and promises and he's going to keep it for you from now and forevermore. And he's going to leave them with. Keep this in your mind so that you trust and you obey as a, as a, as a sign and a quality of genuine belief. It's unspeakably difficult for us to imagine a nation of a million and a half people having to grab a hold in their mind. <clears throat> what will God allow? And yet they trusted and they obeyed even when they couldn't see. And that's what he calls us to do. He called this to the people of Israel and I want to close by reading this in Isaiah 43. He had called them to this after they had exiled in the land in verses one to seven, this same truth that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would not leave them. Isaiah says to the exiled people, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Siva in exchange for you because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west, and I will regather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone, who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This God loved his people who weren't a pretty people. He loved people like us. And he's coming for us. And in one day in the future, 
He's regathering all of his people. And Jesus, the promised Messiah of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Malachi, the wonderful counselor of whose kingdom there will be no end, whose government proceeds with righteousness, will sit on the throne in Israel. And all people from all portions of the world will come and bow to this king because they trust him and they obey him and it leads them to worship him. Believers, I challenge you in your own heart, how well are you trusting him, obeying him, fearing him, loving him, even when it's hard? God will be with you no matter what it is that we, that we walk through together. As long as we trust and obey him, then we can be assured that we're, we can have full confidence in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the way in which you unfold a very important remembrance of the sign of your covenant to the people that you had chosen, Israel, so that we would be called to the same kind of gravity in obedience and trust to you. Lord, that we would recall to our own mind how you have set your gaze and affection upon us and drew us by the tender, loving spirit of God because you loved us and you drew us away from the domain of darkness and you transferred us into your kingdom. Lord, praise be to you. Help us trust you and obey. In your name we pray.